Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome. I hope uh, things are going well in your neck of the woods and everything's, uh, you're staying safe and getting ready for the holiday season. We're going to ratchet things back from, from all things COVID and all that and, and talk a little bit about something that most inpatient clinicians are going to deal with, I think, uh, multiple times in their career, and that's the treatment of hyperkalemia. So again, no earth-shattering studies, no, no landmark uh, uh, guidelines, anything like that. We're just going to we're going to uh, go old school and talk a little bit about uh, hyperkalemia and kind of do as, as, as best we can what we call uh, in inpatient medicine called chalk talks about hyperkalemia. And so, you know, the first piece of that is kind of related to the guidelines because there are none. That's the whole problem with hyperkalemia is that everybody agrees it's a problem. Everybody agrees that there should be a standardized way to approach the treatment of hyperkalemia. But the bottom line is that there are very, very few evidence-based guidelines. Now, part of that, of course, is that how many randomized control trials, you know, can you really have on hyperkalemia when it's often an acute event that's discrete, that you don't have a lot of time to consent patients and, and all that other stuff. I think that's part of it. Part of it is it can be life-threatening, of course. So again, you know, do you really want, you know, you're, it's not going to be ethical to randomize somebody to say placebo, right, and for a life-threatening uh, condition. So that's not going to work. So for, you know, for all those reasons, we don't have a ton of good randomized control trial data on how to treat hyperkalemia. And so because of that, there's really no one who's kind of taken up the cause and said, okay, we're going to come up with consensus guidelines on the treatment of hyperkalemia. And so what that usually leaves most health systems to do is come up with their own set of protocols. And many hospitals I've worked at over the years have, have done their best to try and systematically, you know, set up how, you know, how are we generally going to approach hyperkalemia? And wherever you go, you think a, a lot of the, a lot of the, the components of the, that guidelines are going to be similar, but it's, again, it's just important to keep in mind that, you know, when you say, well, gee, you know, what's the evidence base for everything we're going to talk about? about today. It is well accepted that the evidence base is not that strong. So just kind of keeping that in mind. So, so, you know, hyperkalemia, of course, is high potassium. So when do you actually acutely treat a high potassium? And, and of course, that's, again, a good question, because I mean, there is no evidence based definition for what severe hyperkalemia is. I think everybody realizes that if you have a high potassium EKG changes, that's certainly worrisome. And that's something you're, you're going to say, wow, I better, I better take care of that right away. But if somebody has a potassium of, say, 5.9, in my hospital, Hospital, that would be flagged as high. Do we need to slam them with calcium and give them insulin and, and, you know, and all the other things we would normally do? Ultimately, the answer is it's a case by case thing and clinical judgments needed. I think a lot of it has to do with chronicity, you know, especially in chronic kidney disease uh, patients or end stage renal disease patients, they just may walk around in the high fives. And they're just used to being in the high fives, and they're actually much less likely to develop acute arrhythmias from hyperkalemia. So I think in general, it's, it's recognized that chronic hyperkalemia, you know, again, you know, the dialysis patient who's just, you know, walks around in the high fives is much less likely to have an acute arrhythmic event than hyperkalemia, someone who develops acute kidney injury and then develops hyperkalemia after that. So, you know, so chronicity has a role, obviously level has a role. I think, I think uh, everyone would agree that levels above 6.5 for the average 
average clinician are pretty sphincter tightening, right? We all get a little nervous about that. And certainly EKG changes are particularly worrisome. Also, you know, the cause of hyperkalemia, if it's something as simple as, or not as simple as something as, as easy to figure out as a kidney injury, you know, then I think, you know, say, well, gee, if worse comes to worse, we can start dialysis in them because it's acute kidney injury and things like that. But what if it's something like ongoing potassium release? So you have the cancer patient, for example, who has tumor lysis syndrome, and they're, you know, basically just feeding more and more potassium um, into the kidneys as, as quickly as it'll go and into the bloodstream as quickly as it'll go. That may make you a little more alert and a little more acute for treatment than in other cases, basically. So I like to say, you know, if you're, if you're facing somebody with hyperkalemia and you've determined that you might have to treat it, you know, what can we do kind of a stepwise approach to doing that? And, and again, Keeping in mind that, that the level of evidence for this is not terrifically high, but I think everyone kind of generally agrees this is a kind of a, a, a good standard as ways to approach is, you know, first up, stop any or treat any definable causes, right? So if they have significant acidemia, we can correct the acidemia. That's probably going to help because it pushes the potassium intracellularly. And certainly medications. And as a pharmacist, I can give you a long list of medications that can cause a hyperkalemia. I think probably leading the list are things like potassium sparing diuretics, like spironolactone, uh, ACE inhibitors um, and ARBs and Bacrim because of, of the trimifloprim component, which can act as a potassium sparing diuretic essentially. So, you know, or they're just getting a lot of uh, excess uh, potassium. You know, I think everybody in either medical school or pharmacy school is, is told the story of, of the guy who has heart failure and they say, well, you can't have salt anymore. So he went, he goes and buys salt substitute, which of course is potassium chloride instead of sodium chloride, and then gets into trouble with that. So if there's any causes you can find that you can do something about, obviously, do that. Um, stop any medications that have the potential for damaging the kidneys because this is really where you want the kidneys to work and try to maintain a, a good state of euvolemia with perfusion. And then you break treatments into therapies that basically either protect the heart and buy you time. And we'll talk about those first. And then we'll talk about how do you actually get potassium out of the body. And there's certainly been a real switch, I think, in the last 10 years away from potassium binders. And we'll talk about why that is. And moving more towards a calurisis, which is basically using diuretics to get rid of the potassium. And we'll talk about, you know, the strategies to do that. So I think the first step is important because cause can sometimes dictate therapy, right? It, when you think about it, the kidneys are actually very, very good at maintaining a normal level of potassium in the body. And they do so because of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And so when that system either gets overwhelmed or there's a, there's a problem that interrupts the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, that can be a cause of hyperkalemia. And as a pharmacist, that's particularly of interest because it's impaired aldosterone production that is the cause of ACE inhibitor-induced hyperkalemia. So, and which of course makes sense because you're blocking angiotensin II or blocking ACE. So that certainly makes sense. Uh, the other drug that occasionally causes hyperkalemia via this pathway is heparin, um, which I, again, a lot of clinicians like heparin causes hyperkalemia. It actually can occasionally do this. And it works again, because it actually can, can impair aldosterone production in some patients. And I'll admit, I've only seen, you know, what I was pretty sure was heparin-induced hyperkalemia a few times in my career, but it does happen. And it's something you want, you, you, you want to be aware of. Uh, Nonsteroidals can sometimes cause hyperkalemia because they impair renal uh, renin secretion. So, you know, as drugs or a cause of that can, can, can certainly do that. Any sort of interruption to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system can certainly lead to hyperkalemia, but there's a lot of cases where basically it's the RAS system 
is basically overwhelmed for a variety of reasons. Again, potassium sparing diuretics like trimiflaprim or you know some other medications, obstructive uropathy, lupus, things along those lines where the kidney is just refractory to, to, to aldosterone. The bottom line is that renin angiotensin aldosterone system is, is overwhelmed and that leads to high potassium. Now you may say to yourself, well, okay, that's terrific and, and, and all that mechanistic stuff is cool, but how does that help me when I'm in the emergency room dealing with a, a patient with a potassium of, of six and a half or seven? It's important because if you're dealing with impaired renin secretion or impaired aldosterone production, so if, if you suspect it's non-steroidals, if you suspect it's heparin, if you suspect it's ACE inhibitors or, or antigen receptor blockers, you can actually increase mineral corticoid production by using fluid recortisone in those patients. And again, that's something that's relatively new, I think, unless you're a nephrologist. I had never been taught to use fluid recortisone for, for the treatment of hyperkalemia, but there are some small studies that suggest it works. And again, mechanistically, it certainly makes sense that if the problem is impaired aldosterone production, and that means mineral corticoid levels drop. If I can give a mineral corticoid, then that should help with potassium. So that's going to kind of come into our how to get rid of potassium from the body sort of thing here in just a second. So the first thing you want to do then is think to yourself, you know, is this a aldosterone sensitive cause, if, if you will, of, of hyperkalemia? Once that's done, especially if there's significant EKG changes, obviously you're going to want to give something to protect the heart. And of course we give calcium salts to do that. There's, uh, you know, always some noise, I think at a low level about, you know, GG should I give chloride versus gluconate? If you look at the actual American Heart Association guidelines for the ACLS algorithm, they really don't say one type of calcium salt over another. I think that the benefit of chloride is you get more calcium, but it hurts, especially in a peripheral line. It is pretty painful, whereas gluconate is less irritating to veins, but you get overall less calcium with it as well. So, I mean, I think you kind of, you know, you choose your poison or basically, you know, whatever calcium that the pharmacy's got is the one that you're probably going to want to do. And basically you give a bolus of anywhere from, you know, you know, one to three grams of calcium IV. If you notice peak T waves in the EKG, that in itself may be an indication for calcium salts just to protect the heart again from developing further heart manifestations of hyperkalemia. But the problem with calcium salts is they only last about 60 minutes. So they protect the heart, but they protect the heart only for about an hour. And so further doses may be required. And certainly in my practice over the years, that's kind of where I've seen maybe a stumble where patients got a potassium seven and a half, we immediately give calcium gluconate two grams and it's 10 or 11 down the road and we're still getting diuresis going or, or whatever we're doing to get potassium off and we haven't repeated the calcium salts. So that's something we probably should do at that point. The other thing, of course, we can do is temporarily push potassium intracellularly. I and mean, there's a number of mechanisms to do that. Probably the most common one and the one that's recommended usually is the first line treatment is using insulin to push potassium intracellularly. So insulin leads to counter-regulatory hormone production that basically pushes pushes potassium intracellularly and decreases serum potassium levels. Um, the traditional dose, of course, is 10 units of regular insulin plus an amp of D50 to cover them so they don't get hypoglycemic. Though I always kind of laugh when we've got a diabetic who has acute kidney injury and their sugars are 350 and they have a high potassium and we give 10 units of regular insulin and an amp of D50. It's like, no, I don't think they probably need that D50. I think the insulin is, is perfectly fine for them because <laughs> they're already hyperglycemic. It is worth noting that once you give that D50, there's been a few 
small studies that have suggested that, that patients will remain hyperglycemic for hours after treatment. So again, if they're already hyperglycemic, you probably don't need to give that APA D50 to cover them. I think it's just reasonable to go ahead and, and give them the 10 units of regular insulin. There's some other regimens that have been looked at. Uh, as far as I know, there's no difference in, in them as far as safety or efficacy. So again, that's almost always the first line treatment, especially in adults with hyperkalemia to push the potassium intercellularly. The other thing that, that can be done is, is giving very high doses of albuterol. And by high doses, I usually mean anywhere from five to 10 times the doses that are used for respiratory disease. So if you think that a neb of albuterol is just you know what you're going to get for asthma or COPD, you're talking anywhere from five to 10 times, 10 nebs to do that. And so because of that, at those doses, the tachycardia you're going to get and the you know kind of CNS excitation you're going to get, not a lot of adults can tolerate it. So I, I don't see it used a lot in adults. And my pediatric colleagues will sometimes use it because kids tend to tolerate high heart rates a lot better. So now you've bought yourself some time by pushing the potassium intercellularly, giving the calcium protect the heart. Now we've got to get rid of uh, potassium. And, and we'll talk about uh, potassium binders in just a second. But one of the key pieces about calyuresis is maintaining a euvolemic state because if the patient gets dehydrated, that can worsen acute kidney injury and, of course, make it harder for the kidneys to get rid of potassium. So while you're diuresing the patient, you've also got to maintain euvolemia by giving them concomitant IV fluids. And this may be one of the only times I can think of where giving IV fluids and diuretics at the same time isn't kind of, you know, counterintuitive or doesn't make a lot of sense. So then the question is, well, what diuretic or what fluid would you want to use? And there's been a bit of, again, a bit of a shift. Again, when I was kind of in school, you know, getting out of school in the first years, I was out in practice. Everyone thought, you know, saline, saline, saline for everybody. Now it's kind of recommended uh, by experts in the field that you really want to divide the patients into whether they have a metabolic acidosis or whether they don't have a metabolic acidosis. And if they do have a metabolic acidosis, then probably go ahead and use bicarb in those patients. Why? Because bicarb will not only keep them euvolemic, but bicarbonate also pushes potassium intracellularly. So you actually are getting two treatments with one stone. Basically, you're maintaining euvolemia and pushing potassium intracellularly. And, and to maintain that, that means you've got to give isotonic bicarb. And the way to do that, again, the pharmacists listening, are, I think, are pretty well aware, is you give three amps of bicarb. So in each one of those is 50 milliquid equivalents in a liter of D5, and that essentially gives you isotonic bicarb that's very similar to normal saline as far as its tonicity. And then basically that'll be your fluid. If they are not or not have metabolic acidosis, then you'd want to go ahead and use lactated ringers. And again, that's a big, big shift. Um, I was always taught not to use lactated ringers in, in patients with uh, hyperkalemia because there's a little bit of potassium in lactated ringers. That's absolutely true, but that's more of a dogma that, that's being questioned now. In fact, the fear is, is less of the a little bit of potassium and lactated ringers causing the potassium to get worse. But actually, if you're going to use normal saline, the chloride in the saline can actually give you a non-ion gap metabolic acidosis, which can actually make hyperkalemia worse. So even though normal saline doesn't have potassium in it, because of its high chloride level and its tendency to cause non-ion gap metabolic acidosis, it can actually make your hyperkalemia worse. So again, big, big shift away from when I came out of school is basically if they have metabolic acid acidosis to maintain euvolemia, use bicarb. And if they don't have a metabolic acidosis, use lactated ringers to maintain euvolemia. 
Now, the other big thing that's been a big change, I think, in the last 20 years or so is the use of potassium binders. And when I came out of school, caxalate or sodium polycyphrine sulfate was the standard thing, right? We gave, you know, 20 to 40 grams of caxalate to everybody who had hyperkalemia. And in fact, they, nephrologists would sometimes, and I think even now still sometimes, will we'll occasionally use low-dose caxalate in their end-stage renalization patients to maintain eukalemia. The, the pendulum has really swung away from, from caxalate. Uh, it is important to realize that caxalate was never actually FDA approved. It was one of those drugs that have been around for a long, long time that kind of got grandfathered in FDA approval. And so there was never really good randomized controlled trial data showing its efficacy and safety. And in recent years, the reports of it causing gut problems, in particular intestinal necrosis and perforation, had started to rise to the point where FDA actually gave uh, Caxalate a boxed warning for that. And so I think a lot of people were kind of unaware of that. We actually did our own study here at Methodist that we were fortunate enough to get published in clinical nephrology where we looked at this and we actually took a look at. Uh, everyone who had gotten caxalate for acute hyperkalemia in our hospital over a period of time. And we looked at it about, about 110 patients. And not only did we find that it actually wasn't all that effective at lowering potassium, we found that in a six-hour rate, it only lowered potassium by about 0.3 to 0.4. Much more worrisome was that in this 110 patients, we had two cases of intestinal necrosis. And one uh, was one perforation and one patient actually died from it. And what was funny was that in, in one of these cases, the question about caxalate being the cause of the intestinal necrosis was never even brought up. It was like everyone kind of missed that part. It wasn't in, it wasn't in the notes at all. And so that I really pushed me away from using a caxalate for acute hyperkalemia. And most nephrologists I know, not again, not all, because I think some feel like at low doses is probably less likely to do this, but I've really gotten away from using uh, potassium binders, or at least caxalate in the treatment of acute hyperkalemia. Now, of course, there are two potassium binders that are now FDA approved uh, for chronic use of hyperkalemia, usually in patients, again, who either have end-stage renal disease or those who are, who are on uh, ACE inhibitors or ARBs who develop hyperkalemia, and we, but we need them to be on those drugs for like heart failure or something. And so that's pteromir and sodium zirconate cyclosilicate. And both those drugs are FDA approved for chronic treatment of hyperkalemia, but do they work in acute hyperkalemia? And one study with pteromir actually did not find it worked all that well. And then one study with the zirconium found that in four hours, it decreased up serum potassium by about 0.7. So probably a little more effective than caxalate, at least based on the data we found. The question will be, would this zirconium potassium binder be the one you'd want to use in patients with acute hyperkalemia? There are no randomized control trial data, and there probably never will be. I'd be surprised if the company that makes it would want to do that study. So the question will have to be, will somebody you know, take a look at this data from a retrospective perspective and, and see, is it working? But the benefit of both these agents is that they don't seem to cause intestinal necrosis or perforation. They Again, they work at least as good, if not better. I think the only real strike against both of them is that they're both pretty expensive. And so that's, that's one of the strikes you're going to deal with. So, so we're talking about hyperkalemia and we're kind of up to the treatment uh, point where we've maintained euvolemia with either uh, isotonic bicarb or with lactated ringers. And now we're going to try to get rid of the potassium by, by giving a, a gentle uh, a diuresis and have potassium leave the body with this calurisis basically. So again, we've maintained euvolemia and you want to try and maintain a target serum 
bicarbonate uh, in kind of the 25 to 30 milliequivalent per liter range of it all possible. Between that and I think just looking at the patient clinically, that will probably tell you what the volume status is. And then you, you can go ahead and start calyresis. Of course, loop diuretics intravenously are probably going to be the way to go. Some I've advocated for kind of higher doses, kind of 80 to 160 milligrams IV of frosmide or its equivalent with bumetanide or torsamide. I think that's, you know, uh, I think 80 is probably a reasonable place to go in these patients. So I think that's probably a reasonable place to start. You could yeah, kind of prime the pump if you want by giving a, uh, a thiazide diuretic. We know that the combination of thiazide diuretics and loop diuretics greatly enhances calyresis. It actually is the reason why I'm always nervous when we use the combination of metolazone and Lasix in heart failure patients that are trying to aggressively diurese because I've definitely seen the bottom drop out of their potassium because of that. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to consider adding a, a thiazide diuretic times one, uh, either orally, and then really the only intravenous thiazide diuretic on the market is in the United States is chlorothiazide. Problem with that, of course, is that it's hard to get and it's pretty pricey. So again, that's kind of plus minus, but here's where that fluidocortisone comes in, right? So if you had a patient that you thought had aldosterone kind of uh, responsible hyperkalemia, this would be a case where fluidocortisone 0.2 milligrams times one would be a good thing to add. So, you know, figuring out what the cause of the hyperkalemia is makes sense. And then, you know, a loop diuretic plus or minus a thiazide diuretic. And then if it, it's a uh, aldosterone responsive type of thing, adding on fluidocortisone 0.2 milligrams times one. If uh, hopefully what happens is they pee and pee and pee, you go ahead and check a, a follow-up potassium and it's gotten down in, into normal range. And just again, you know, making sure that they maintain euvolemia. So you probably want to replace urine volume kind of one mil for one mil with, with whatever fluid you're talking about. If that fails and, and you give them a couple doses of diuretic and they're not going, this may be the time to call your local nephrologist and consider dialysis because of course dialysis is one of the indications for emergent dialysis is refractory hyperkalemia. So I think a standardized approach to how we treat hyperkalemia, my gestalt is that it's going to improve treatment outcomes. Again, I, I'd love to point to studies that show that that's the case, but we just don't have those studies. Um, I think this is an area of medicine that really needs a lot more study considering how common it is and how everyone goes, well, we need to do this, 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 and this. And a lot of that is really just dogma or mechanistically it makes sense. It would be really nice for some people to kind of pick up the ball and, and say, okay, well, we might not be able to get the funds to do randomized controlled trials on this, but could we at least get some, some retrospective studies that say, okay, we, you know, we did the standardized protocol that included, you know, giving fluidocortisone when we needed to giving loop diuretics we need to and giving either isotonic bicarb or, or lactate ringers. And this is what we found. I think even that would add tremendously to the literature about how to, how to treat hyperkalemia and would help especially smaller hospitals that don't have the endless resources of a million clinical pharmacists or, you know, a gigantic nephrology group or nephrology fellows, you know, to really help guide this therapy. So, you know, again, anyone out there listening, thinking that they uh, kind of searching around for, for a research project, maybe a sort of quality control thing where you start a standardized protocol, you then, you know, look at the patients over the course of a year, and then either, you know, just look at those outcomes, or maybe even have, have an historical control of, of what you did before and, and, and see if you can find any benefit there. So maybe something I can do. Uh, we, we've done some research, as I mentioned about hyperkalemia here. So maybe that's something uh, once COVID ends, or gets to a point where it's, it's not as, as in front of our face as it, as it is currently, maybe that's something we can take a look at too. So, so that's it for this episode of Game Changers. Again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. So we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. But remember, as always, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today.
Thank you for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice.